Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As you know, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for all tableware-related podcasts. This month, we're recognizing the History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. As one of the world's most ancient civilizations, ancient Egypt has been making tableware for longer than almost anyone. From the first pit-fired plates to the introduction of the pottery wheel, the show gives a thorough and enjoyable romp through the long and fascinating history of Egyptian ceramics. Dominic also talks about gods and politics and the changing of Egyptian society or whatever. But you can tell that what he really cares about are the plates and bowls that gave Egyptian civilization the glorious reputation that it still has all these millennia later. We have no donors this month, which is fair enough, the last episode only came out recently, but I did hear from a few listeners with some interesting proposals and ideas. Listener Tyler suggested that if I tell you guys what books or expenses I have in the upcoming episodes, that might encourage people to donate for something specific, rather than just paying me for my time. Now, given that I have a master's degree, bills, and a family, I tend to think my time is actually worth something. But the point is well taken, actually. Steve, over at the History of the Papacy podcast, has an Amazon wish list that he shares with his listeners, and that seems like a pretty good idea to me, if I can ever get my act together to plan ahead what books I need. So, in the next few weeks, I'm going to try and share a public list of the books that I've scoped out for the purchase, and I'll try and put a link up on the site. Uh, Get in touch if you think that's a good idea, any feedback along those lines, any feedback with this kind of stuff in general is, is really appreciated. And then, you know, if you have a few extra bucks, maybe buy me a book or something. Following up on this point more generally, some of you may be wondering what I do with the donations and patronage I do receive. Well, I pay Andrew, uh, the equivalent of a living wage, for the hours he works on editing the show. And then, honestly, I pay my bills. Uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, but your donations and patronage have very literally helped me keep the lights on some months, and that is very appreciated. Of course, most of the time I also buy research materials with this uh, funding, if it's necessary, and if I can afford the research materials. Usually I can, but, you know, every little bit helps, so smash that donate button. Uh, Another listener has offered me something that's really interesting. Uh, He had some credits available that he can provide me on an ongoing basis for advertising on Facebook. We are hoping to set up a campaign that's going to target new listeners, but I thought I should just give you all a heads up in case you got ads uh, 
out there, but you know, maybe by mistake. And I just didn't want anyone to think that I was using donation money to buy ads. I mean, I kind of am, but it's not money that I could use at the grocery store. Now, if any of you out there want to help advertise the show but don't have any fancy advertising credits, good news. You can just tell people. Friends, family, particularly intelligent dogs, anyone who might listen. Rating and reviewing the show on your podcatcher of choice is also a great way to help, and obviously donations and patronage are really the rock upon which I've built this whole thing. I didn't expect that, but it sure is appreciated. Speaking of ways to give me money, uh, I would once again like to invite everybody to go to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast.weebly.com, and then go to the store page on the website. There you'll see a fairly giant Agora logo. I'm going to try and resize it at some point, but there's an Agora logo there. If you click on that, it'll take you to the Agora store. You can click on my page there and see all of the fabulous merchandise for sale. Currently, there's three things, but they're fabulous. There's a t-shirt, a green trebuchet t-shirt, a green trebuchet mug, and a uh, lovely tote bag featuring a symbol that I had been hoping to make the show symbol at one point, but due to a variety of hilarious misadventures, it hasn't really been on display until now. Uh, But go check it out. My sister actually drew it, and she worked really hard on it, and I thought it came out really amazing. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I didn't get to use it before, so go go buy it now, because, you know, she worked hard. It's a really nice tote bag, it's a really nice store, Um, and, uh, I I encourage you to all check it out. It is a work in progress. There's some stuff, uh, like shipping rates that we're still working on. Um, so just, uh, if you've checked it out and didn't like what you saw, maybe check it back again at some point in the future. Uh, we're doing our best here, uh, and, uh, I, I really appreciate, uh, anything that any of you can do, even if it's just listen or go to iTunes and give us a good review. Uh, it's all wonderful, and, and thanks very much. One last thing before we uh, we get to today's episode. People seem to really like that last episode about methodology, which is uh, really uh, great. I, I had fun with it. But a couple of you actually got in touch. Listener Tim uh, emailed me to let me know that he actually got in touch with an archivist in the area he was moving to thank them, and sent me a copy of the email and a copy of that archivist's response, which was really great. If any of you out there have taken, uh, the, the inspiration from that episode to get in touch with an archivist or a librarian or, uh, research historian or anything like that, uh, to, to give them thanks, uh, let me know. I, I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, and maybe I'll set up a spot for this stuff on, on the on the website so you can all get due credit. Because, you know, I think that, the, you know, as someone who works in a profession where I don't see the public all the time, getting some, getting some thanks for the work can be nice. And then uh, Duchess Anna of the Sudden Yet Inevitable Betrayal also got in touch uh, and actually had let me know about a project that the Smithsonian, I believe, is doing that uh, people can pitch in to help with some of the digitization work and metadata work that's associated with with archiving uh, some of the, you know, massive mountains of material that the Smithsonian has available. Uh, I'm going to try and post a link to that in the show notes. I I definitely put it up on Facebook um, a few weeks back, so if I forget, just check there. But, you know, I'll I'll try and post it. So I thought that was a really valuable project, and that seems like the kind of hole I'd sink a lot of time into myself if I weren't, you know, doing this whole podcast thing. So I encourage you guys to go do it. 
Anyway, uh, with that, let's get started. The trip home was entirely by sea. The envoys encountered heavy weather and stayed away from the Slav shores. They piled up their spears and strung their bows whenever they sighted an Arab ship. But a gale drove her away as the travelers huddled under their rain-repellent skins. Quote from Origins of the European Economy by Michael McCormick Discussing the Embassy of Amalarius to Constantinople Quote read by Brandon Hubner of the Maritime History Podcast Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 50, The Economy Part 1, The Decline and Fall of Whiggish Historical Practices. Last time out, I gave a rundown of the new tools and techniques that have been changing the practice of history since the 1990s, and hinted strongly that this has contributed to a major reevaluation of the Middle Ages in the last few decades. Today, we will see the area in which these new tools have probably had the strongest impact, the study of the medieval economy. But to do that, we need to start with a discussion that rivals methodology for its popularity with the kids. I speak, of course, of historiography. Ooh. For centuries, the story of the Middle Ages was formed by narratives based on the admiration felt by European intellectuals for the Roman Empire. From the very beginning, European intellectuals viewed themselves as carrying on the legacy of Rome. Of course, this reached its peak in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, when Rome was seen as the archetype of a successful civilization, and anything related to it was seen as the height of good taste. By contrast, the time after its fall was seen as the Dark Ages, when Europe sank into ignorance and barbarism. Rome was good, and the Middle Ages were bad, and by extension the new thinkers of this new time period who are engaged in trying to revive Rome's greatness through the study of classical literature, they were good as well. For historians, this was obvious from the study of the narrative historical sources, which showed Rome as strong and good, while those in the post-Rome era were weak and mired in bickering conflicts. Often there were few sources available at all for this time period, and what existed was just generally not complimentary. These assumptions continued even after the achievements of European civilization began to outstrip those of their ancient heroes. Though many at the time didn't see it this way, from the time of Kepler onwards, so say around 1600 or so, European innovations in technology, science, and philosophy began to go in new and unique directions. Amongst the modes of inquiry examined were the beginnings of what we would come to call economics, something that had almost no precedent in surviving Roman thought. Of course, by 1800, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations came out and put economics in the front of every intellectual mind in Europe. This naturally led historians of the period to begin attempting to analyze the economics of their historical periods. Unfortunately, the dearth of surviving documentation, combined with the pre-existing pro-Roman biases of these Whiggish historians, to heavily color the narrative that they produced. It was obvious that Rome had a highly complex economy, capable of shipping exotic goods all over the empire and producing surpluses large enough to build the monumental architecture that they all loved. 
The historians concluded that Rome had possessed an economy which functioned like Europe's in the 19th century. That is to say, a largely open, capitalistic trading system based on long-distance trade of commodities and manufactured goods. Historians of Rome began to wonder why this impressively wealthy trading system had not eventually industrialized. But everyone agreed that when the empire fell apart politically, the economy collapsed as a result. The story of the Middle Ages, then, was one of a long, slow recovery which paralleled the gradual rediscovery of Roman learning. The economic weaknesses of this recovery were blamed on all manner of things that 19th century intellectuals hated, including protectionism, diversified crop types rather than focusing on cash crops, and, worst of all, wasteful spending. According to these historians, it wasn't until the merchant capitalists of the 1400s that the economy began to revive. This narrative remains the most common one in the popular mind, so let's call it the popular history narrative if we need to refer back to it. The first person to seriously challenge this picture was Henri Pirenne. Pirenne was part of the generation of historians just before Marc Bloch, and his work would be deeply influential on the structuralists. Pirenne noted that the economy of the 19th century was not clearly linked to government policy, and thus it was worth examining how closely the Roman economy had been to the Roman government. He did this by delving deeply into the available sources, looking for evidence of trade goods around the Mediterranean. His most virtuosic work examined the availability of papyrus, an ancient form of paper produced only in Egypt. In many sources it was noted that papyrus had once been so common that in Europe monks had burned it in oil lamps as a wick. But all sources ultimately noted that this era had passed. By the 700s, the commodity was gone, and everyone in France had to resort to the much more expensive practice of writing on vellum or parchment, which were made from different kinds of hides. Perrin, therefore, eventually did decide that a collapse had occurred after the fall of the empire, but that the collapse could not be attributed to the fall of the political structure of the empire. Instead, Perrin blamed the Muslim conquest of the southern Mediterranean, which occurred between 600 and 700. According to Perrin, this economic dark age was caused by the long-distance trade network being disrupted by Saracen pirates, who were soon joined by Vikings and Magyars. It was clear that all economic activity in Europe had collapsed as a result of these trade networks being choked off. It could also be seen in archaeological evidence from the cities of Europe, whose populations had simply imploded after the fall of the empire. Perrin concluded this discussion by focusing on the microscale of the European rural manor. Perrin noted how the monks and nobles of the time idealized the manor as an economic unit which should be focused on self-sufficiency and that any kind of trade for economic gain was looked down upon. Perrin described nobles who set up workshops so that each village could fulfill its own needs for consumer goods and all set to... Uh, create a self-contained economy which would funnel agricultural surplus production to the Lord. But since the wider economy had collapsed, the Lord had no outlet for his surplus of goods. Given that food goes bad, uh, once the Lord had fed and clothed his household, he had to be content. This kept taxes on the peasantry low and kept European society focused on subsistence. But by 1200, all of this had changed and Europe had begun its recovery in earnest. This view, and the other work done by Perrin, was deeply influential on Marc Bloch, but it had its opponents. Alphonse, El, Alphonse, okay, this guy's name is tough. Um, 
If there's any Austrians out there, I apologize in advance. Alphon Dopsch, an Austrian economic historian, uh, pointed to other evidence. Dopsch pointed out that most of the authors writing in this period were monks whose religious ideology was actively hostile to economic activity. Dopsch pointed to numerous stories of pilgrims heading to the Holy Land after the Muslim conquest, and to archaeological evidence of the continued presence of foreign goods to support the idea of a continuation of the Roman economic trade system. While it was not necessarily attested to in the records, this was because of the biases of the authors, who were all religiously motivated, rather than objective reality. Supporters of Dopsch came to be dubbed maximalists, since they believed a large amount of trade continued, while supporters of Peren, who argued that there had been an economic collapse, were dubbed minimalists. These men were writing around the turn of the 20th century, in the decades before World War I, and these two hostile camps of economic historians that they inspired would wage bitter academic feuds through pretty much the entirety of the 20th century. The debate forced both camps to gradually amend their views. For example, the idea that it was Islamic dominance of the Tyrrhenian Sea, which caused the economic collapse of the Roman system, fell apart relatively quickly after Peren's death. Uh, and even the most diehard maximalist had to admit that there was probably some kind of market correction after the fall of the entire political system of the Roman government. Still, by the 1980s, both camps had settled into a kind of stalemate in which neither side could produce any new evidence, and both sides insisted on differing interpretations of the evidence that did exist. The minimalists argued that some form of downturn had happened in the European economy between the fall of the empire and 1200 or so, though there wasn't a lot of agreement as to when it reached its lowest point and when the recovery began. It was felt that the decline of Roman infrastructure, piracy at sea, and constant warfare between the different Germanic successor kingdoms to the Roman Empire all combined to make long-distance trade essentially impossible. Economic activity became crushingly local, ultimately restricted to entirely self-sufficient manors, where the lack of an outlet for material wealth kept rents low for the peasants and serfs, who were entirely engaged in subsistence farming. The maximalists continued to say that the Roman economy had simply evolved into the medieval economy based on individual entrepreneurialism. Then, the 1990s happened, as described in the last episode. To cut a long story short, the maximalist viewpoint has been largely discredited. Everything from the environmental record preserved in glaciers, to new documentary evidence, to archaeological evidence on both land and sea, have shown fairly definitively that between the years 500 and 800, economic activity in Europe ground to as near a standstill as it's possible to be while still having an area that contains living human beings. At the same time, the minimalist position has had to undergo such a major overhaul as to be almost unrecognizable as well. The exact nature and timing of this economic collapse in Europe has had to be re-examined and re-explained in the light of new evidence, and what we have learned about the nature of Europe's revival is exciting, fascinating, and actually very important for us in this story that we're attempting to tell about the early modern period. This show is about the early modern period. Anyway, the new evidence requires us to re-examine what we thought we knew about four key parts of this story. The composition of the Roman economy, the process of collapse which that economy underwent, microeconomic form of the new rural manners, and the macroeconomic trade system that revived in the Middle Ages. 
All of these are complex topics, which could be podcast episodes in themselves, and I'm trying to not do that, so let's get started. As I've already discussed today, the traditional view of the Roman economy was that it was a freewheeling capitalist system. Some historians have laid the blame for the fall of the empire on the overly onerous restrictions placed on this trade system by the empire, its over-dependence on slavery, or its disastrous fiscal policies. These viewpoints, as we will see, have some truth to them, but they miss the fundamental nature of the imperial economy in its heyday. The thing is, the Roman economy was pre-industrial and pre-capitalist. It was fundamentally different in organizational principle from how our societies organized, so much so that modern assumptions about how economies work break down at a fairly fundamental level. You see, we tend to assume that the people in a society do work that results in the creation of value. If things are running well, most of us will generate enough value to have a little bit extra, which we can spend on consumer goods. If enough people are buying consumer goods, then that gives jobs to still more people who can buy more consumer goods, and it creates a lovely self-reinforcing cycle. In pre-industrial societies, the vast preponderance of economic value ultimately is produced by farming. And the thing about farmers uh, in pre-industrial, pre-agricultural revolution societies is that they eat most of their value. Every complex society in history, before the 1800s anyway, was economically based on how farmers were organized and how the wealth they produced was moved through the rest of society. With very brief exceptions, there has almost never been a period in recorded history where it proved possible for an agricultural middle class to develop in a stable way that would allow them to participate in a consumer goods market. There are a number of reasons for this, the most important being that the individual farmers sort of don't produce enough surplus to support specialists who could generate economies of scale that would allow goods to be genuinely affordable to the middle-class farmers. As a result, most pre-industrial societies that developed any kind of complexity did so on the basis of extracting small surpluses of wealth from large numbers of rural farmers. This has been done in the form of taxes, rents, or economic exploitation, but this is a truth across most of human history. Anytime you see an urban society before 1800, it exists because any food surplus developed in the countryside was removed and sent to the cities. By the time the Roman Empire reached its height, it had developed one of the most complex and exploitative versions of this system. There was a large urban population supported by a large rural population composed of portions of free farmers, tenant farmers, and a huge number of slaves. As I've said in previous episodes, at least half of the rural population was enslaved in Italy. In the cities, a large portion of the population was desperately poor and almost entirely dependent on the grain dole from the government or patronage from the wealthy. Slaves and the desperately poor, you will note, do not tend to buy consumer goods. There was a consumer goods market, to be sure. Some economies of scale were achieved in the Roman Empire, but they were few and far between and never became really self-sustaining. Almost all manufacture was done at a craft level. The only way these goods were affordable by the majority of the population of the empire was due to government subsidy. The subsidy came in two flavors, direct subsidies and graft by the rich. By direct subsidies, I mean that the Roman state built things like roads and ships for the transportation of goods to support the army and the transportation of grain to the urban centers of the empire. 
These efforts, along with other civic building projects, happened on a truly massive scale, and the movements of goods that resulted, which sent supplies to the farthest frontiers to support the army while bringing food from other frontiers into the heart of the empire, made up a huge portion of the economic activity of the empire. Thousands of people were employed in these efforts directly, and many more thousands participated indirectly in the affected industries. The graft that in some ways plagued the empire was also a major part of the economic system, and was much bigger than was once thought. Direct graft and corruption was pretty straightforward and pretty negative. The wealthy were able to get government contracts and skim resources away from the empire. This could take the form of tax farmers extracting extra money from the poor, or the senators who sold those positions to their equestrian clients. The resources generated did recirculate through the economy, though, in terms of direct purchases of goods and services, as well as the notorious practice of Roman patrons simply giving daily gifts to their clients. There was another kind of side to graft, however, that straddles the line between graft and subsidy. Put it simply, the communications networks sponsored by the empire were just expected to carry a certain amount of extra goods beyond the official needs of the empire. Now let's say uh, a cart hired by the Roman army was expected to haul, I'm making this number up, half a ton of grain out of the Rhine. The empire built the road, hired the teamster, gave him food and shelter for him and his mule. The legion gets the grain, the teamster gets his salary, and the mule gets some hay. Win, win, win. Let's say the teamster throws a few amphora onto his cart during the trip and sells it to the commander of the legion when he arrives. That's not a huge deal, actually. It's a bit of extra wear and tear on the mule, maybe, but the teamster makes a little bit of extra money, and the commander of the legion gets some nicer wine than usual. Sure, the teamster is technically using government resources in an unintended way, but then any of you out there who has used the office fax machine to send something to your doctor has done kind of the same thing. This isn't a major sin we're talking about here. But where this becomes interesting is when you multiply this simple transaction by thousands. Huge quantities of grain, wine, and oil were constantly on the move around the empire to support the legion and to keep the urban poor fed. Each cart and each ship so engaged was carrying that little bit of extra stuff. This meant that private trading networks piggybacked on the official lines of communication. And this had knock-on effects. Let's... Take shipping, for example. Before the Empire, large ships were fairly rare. Most shipping in the Hellenistic period focused on short-haul shipping in smaller ships. But the Empire needed grain for its urban centers and it was willing to pay. The Empire sponsored the building of huge ships by private owners and took on all the risk if the ships sank. These owners were subject to intensive regulation, and fraud could result in the owner being tortured to death a penalty that is sadly no longer practiced for white-collar criminals, but the net result was that the owner got a gigantic ship out of the deal. So long as they hauled the specified amount of imperial grain when asked, they could do what they wanted with the extra capacity and extra time of the ship. The net result, at least according to Michael McCormick, was that the Roman economy was somewhat addicted to government-subsidized communication networks. It seems likely that the captains of these subsidized ships could outcompete other ships, to the detriment of the long-range economic trading networks that predated the empire. Just to reinforce the point, huge numbers of people were employed working on these systems, which meant that the human capital of the Mediterranean was also predisposed to follow the shipping routes used by these imperial fleets. 
You see, in, in an era when sailors did not tend to be literate, they couldn't read charts. So seamen had to gain their skills through direct experience. So they tended to favor sailing in places that they had already sailed before. If a huge portion of your merchant marine spends most of its time sailing back and forth between Egypt and Rome, well, most of the people in the merchant marine are going to know how to sail back and forth between Egypt and Rome. As a result, even captains with unsubsidized boats would often end up hiring crews who were only really comfortable sailing on the imperial trunk routes. Of course, not all trade in the Roman Empire took the form of long-range seafaring. In fact, traditional shippers in the Mediterranean were notoriously hesitant to sail out of the sight of land, so some explanation of how imperial shipping related to other forms of communication is in order. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize about a dozen fascinating and extraordinarily detailed chapters into a paragraph. Michael McCormick notes that traditional short-range traders definitely continued to practice, but the scale of their activities is unclear. This lack of clarity is true of riverine shipping as well, which is rather frustrating due to the key role riverine shipping had in the Roman economy. That said, in terms of land communications, the pressures exerted on the economic system by the empire are similar to those at sea. Whatever trade systems had existed before, the Roman armies came in and built, maintained, and protected the famous Roman highway systems. These arteries came to dominate economic activities of the empire, and more traditional, shorter-range communication systems rearranged themselves to utilize these systems. Podcast footnote. It's worth pausing right here to acknowledge the debt that this episode owes to Michael McCormick's Origins of the European Economy. The scope and ambition of that book are just absurd. It is the kind of book that comes around once a generation in the academic literature. McCormick brings together evidence from literally dozens of subdisciplines to do the kind of quantitative, detailed research that most of us who are interested in history can only just dream about. McCormick did things like dig up 662 different early medieval sources that discuss just the concept of traveling. He translated and analyzed these sources himself, in many cases, to determine the time periods of the travel, who was traveling, and how, how reliable the individual sources were. He then entered the results into spreadsheet systems and GIS maps to figure out where the individuals in that source traveled, how long it took them, and what route they took, and then analyzed this for patterns. The book is unbelievably valuable, and it's kind of a fun read if you like snarky historians, which you know I do, but it can also feel a little bit half-finished. It is sort of a first attempt to summarize 50 years of new research while the field was in the middle of a revolution, and it tends to come off as a series of summaries of different fields of work that point suggestively, but not definitively, in a certain direction. Oh, and this behemoth of a work is around 1,000 normal-sized pages of text, charts, and maps, with an extensive set of appendices, and when you factor in that I also ha was reading three other relevant books, I hope you can forgive my scheduling issues. The other books I consulted for this episode were Medieval Europe by Chris Wickham, Economic and Social History of Medieval Europe by Henri Perrin, and The Long Morning of Medieval Europe, New Directions in Early Medieval Studies, edited by Jennifer Davis and Michael McCormick. You will notice a certain bias in my research materials towards Mr. McCormick, a bias that gets worse when you realize that Chris Wickham contributed to the last book. I think it's fair to say that Chris Wickham and Michael McCormick currently dominate the field of early medieval studies, and we should just be okay with that. Their works consistently show up as definitive works on the subject by contemporary historians. Nonetheless, there is a danger that I've relied too strongly on these two figures. 
I think that their arguments are sound, their research is absurdly exhaustive, and it seems to conform to conclusions in other books and articles I've read by other historians. I do feel the need to give a big caveat, however, that I didn't do some basic things like look up academic critiques of Wickham and McCormick. I hope you understand that after something like 3,000 pages of reading just for this one episode, work which was interspersed with a variety of family emergencies, I'm kind of exhausted, and I had to put the pencils down somewhere. In any case, if you're looking for more reading on the subject, I definitely recommend Wickham's books, as they're easy to read and well-researched. If you really want to nerd out, go all in and get your hands on a copy of The Origins of the Medieval Economy by Michael McCormick. It's worth your time. It's magnificent. And McCormick has a great wit, but uh, it can be kind of a slog. End podcast footnote. Given the place of economics in modern political discourse, there's a strong and anachronistic tendency to pass judgment on things like the subsidies that underwrote the Roman imperial trade system and other economic policies. Obviously, I don't think this is really appropriate, but a few words are necessary, I think. The empire did eventually run out of resources, and much of that was due to an economic system that was something of a widening gyre. But blaming this exclusively on the various economic policies of the empire is kind of simplistic and reductive. While the empire's disastrous fiscal policy certainly didn't help anyone, there were things going on beyond the economy that clearly had an impact on the system. Political instability resulted in centuries of civil war that damaged infrastructure and caused a political economy that drove spending that was far more reckless than government spending on transportation systems. Incursions by Germanic tribes also had an impact on infrastructure. The calcification of the empire's microeconomies into slave plantations that gradually lost supplies of slaves has been blamed by many historians for damaging the empire's economy, especially when coupled with increasing evidence of climate change and ecological devastation, combined with and emphasized by overfarming. An issue we have discussed before at length, but which bears repeating in this discussion, is that of illness. While malaria, leprosy, and bubonic plague had probably made appearances in earlier eras of the ancient world, genetic and medical evidence suggests strongly that all these illnesses seem to have morphed into new, more virulent forms sometime in this period. Of the three, bubonic plague is the most notorious, but malaria may have had the biggest impact in the long term. In any case, all three were custom-built to attack the key feature of the Roman society and economy, namely the cities. All three uh, thrive in crowded conditions with poor sanitation. Plague famously uses rodents as a key vector, and malaria, of course, uses mosquitoes as vectors, and mosquitoes live in swamps. For the Romans, uh, in order to maximize their economic efficiency, their cities were almost always built near water, often in swampy conditions. Of course, malaria would not impact northern cities because the cold climate kills off mosquitoes, and plague would not affect communities cut off from trade. So when taken together, these three illnesses probably had a major demographic impact that almost specifically targeted the areas in southern Europe that happened to form the keystones of the Roman economy. By contrast, the relatively rural and underdeveloped north escaped the worst of their depredations. Now, there's a danger here that I'm rehashing the 693,754 reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire, but suffice it to say that there were issues beyond government economic policy that degraded the Roman economic system. And yet, it certainly did degrade, especially in Western Europe. 
Overall, the picture of late antiquity we have is one of a peak around the year 100, followed by a rapid decline as the empire entered the crisis of the 3rd century, a slow recovery in the 300s, major contractions as the empire entered the crisis of the 5th century. Things stabilized until the disastrous Italian wars in the mid-500s, at which point the cities of Italy were ruined by grinding warfare, sieges, and then, just as the dust was settling, the bubonic plague swept over the peninsula. This was, however, still not the nadir of Europe's economic fortunes, because even at this late stage, the grain ships were sailing from Egypt to Constantinople, and other government ships continued to bring supplies and support to North Africa, Sicily, and Western Italy. As a result, trade links continued under imperial subsidy. But then the Sassanid Wars of the 600s interrupted these supplies, and by 700, the Arab conquests of Egypt had ended this last vestige of the Roman macroeconomy. Eastern Roman outposts in Sicily and in western and southern Italy remained, and they held open the sea lanes to the east, but the subsidized grain ships, with their spare capacity and deep-sea sailing expertise, were gone. Podcast footnote. I really, really hate the Gregorian dating system. The fact that the 3rd century starts with the year 200 just messes me up every time. I've checked multiple times on my dating, and yet even as I say this last paragraph, I'm pretty sure I messed it up. Can we fix this or something? Seriously, it's the 21st... 20... It's Stardate 72513.1. Get it together, people. End podcast footnote. The fallout of this gradual process of economic decline was only clear after the echoes of the final explosion had faded. For centuries, government-subsidized ships had dominated trade, and increasingly those ships had come from the east. The chaos in northern Europe meant that the empire had concentrated much of its army equipment production in the east as well. With the fall of Egypt, the Mediterranean was, in many ways, swept clean of large ships, and just as important of mariners, with expertise engaged in long-distance trade. While some trade of this type probably continued, it was very clearly at a much reduced rate. But that really doesn't mean that the sea was entirely empty. In fact, we have a number of pieces of testimony and evidence from this period that, combined with some logical deductions from what we know of the political situation, can help us picture something of what remained at the medieval shipping system. In short, those short-range shippers that had always coexisted with the Roman trading system continued to ply their trade. They even had some advantages over their ancient colleagues. While the merchants of Greece and the Roman Republic had attempted to sail under the power of oars and square sails, late antiquity saw the advent of the triangular or lantine sail. These sails do not provide quite as much power as square sails, but they're much easier to reposition, which allows sailors to take advantage of winds even when they are not directly at the back of the ship. As a result, Oars became less important for merchant vessels, which made them more efficient and allowed them to take advantage of a greater variety of sailing conditions. All the same, these coastal mariners preferred short-range trips in waters they knew well. They also made use of small ships, which required less investment and could make use of less sophisticated docking facilities. In fact, most mariners apparently just ran their ships up on sandy beaches or threw out an anchor in the mouth of a convenient stream. This allowed these sailors to rest at night when they couldn't see obstacles. It let them take advantage of trade opportunities along their route. And it let them take fewer supplies on board, since they could get food and drink along the way. It also allowed them to sail longer into the winter than had been the case in antiquity. 
After all, if a sudden winter storm blows up, the ship can simply dart into a convenient harbor, so long as they know the waters they're sailing in. Some of these sailors continued to use the old trading routes from, of the, the Eastern Roman Empire, from Constantinople out to Greece, then around southern Italy to Sicily. From Sicily, ships went up to Sardinia and Corsica, depending on the year and the conditions. What's less clear is how much of this route was being used by, like, single ships. Sources from the era confirm that some ships would indeed engage in major portions of the trip, but it seems unlikely that a ship went all the way from Constantinople to Sardinia. Rather, Sicily served as an imperial depot, and local ships would patrol the western islands from Sicily. Meanwhile, most traders would only engage in so-called coastal tramping. Moving from beach to beach each day, going back and forth between trading cities along well-known routes, most trade during this time period must have taken place along networks of such short-range trading movements, interlocking spheres of communication, with goods moving slowly from city to city, changing hands many times. While not particularly efficient in delivering goods to consumers, this does sound like kind of an idyllic lifestyle for the merchants. In the texts that we have, they seem remarkably unhurried, and very devoted to their frequent breaks for refreshment with the locals. Of course, this is still the Middle Ages. They had some things to worry about. Ships were uh, rather worryingly prone to simply disintegrating, and pirate attacks were a major problem. So I'm not going to trade in my office job for a one-way TARDIS trip anytime soon. Still, it seems pretty nice. Let's leave it there for now. I have a bunch more to say about the medieval economy, but predictably, it was too much to fit into a single episode. I'll try to get a quick turnaround on the next one to make up for the last few months, but for now, let's leave it there, with medieval Ben lying on a beach in the Adriatic, sipping a local brew, and humming the future kings of nowhere. Today we talked about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and began to discuss what was left in the wake of that event. We talked about how much the Roman trading system got tied into subsidized networks of shipping and road transport that were tied to the supply of armies and grain shipments to the big cities. Spare capacities in these networks helped supply something of a consumer market, but this market was never large enough to become self-sustaining, and the productive capacity never attained an economy of scale. Because these networks were so heavily subsidized, they outcompeted independent traders, but some kind of coastal tramping continued, taking advantage of new advances in maritime technology. When the empire began to fall apart politically and militarily, the economic system began to come apart as well. First, the industrial production sites in northern Europe were removed, then the supply stopped flowing to the Rhine frontier in Britain. Eventually, grain shipments stopped going to Rome, and ultimately the loss of Egypt ended commerce in the eastern Mediterranean as well. While eastern Roman outposts kept one portion of the old shipping lanes open, most commerce in this time devolved back into coastal trampers, who went back and forth between well-known cities, stopping every night on a glorious beach or in a scenic brook to canoodle with willing locals and tell stories around campfires. I may be romanticizing this a little bit. Next time out, we'll shift our focus north as we look at how the fall of the empire affected land communications and eventually see how the economy began to rebound during and after the Carolingian Empire. While it may not have idyllic beach scenes, we will probably get a visit from the Khazars, everyone's favorite nebbish steppe warriors, and that is always fun. So be sure to check in next time for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Shave and get dressed and hope you're not late 
spend half the day with people you hate Instead of staying in bed with the one that you love You're stuck at a job doing the bidding of A boss who does not know your name but can fire at will Saving up money, paying the bills That doesn't kill you, the interest rate will I dream all day of an easier life With the wind in my hair and the sun in my eyes Waking up late with my feet in the sand And my hand in yours On some southern French shore where we pulled into port So the captain can rest while he charts a new course Let's be pirates, let's be outlaws I'm so tired of these undead and day jobs Let's get married, or just not bother If our friends can't, then we should either We could head out for adventure Quit our jobs and go sailing forever I'll be Blackbeard, you be Bonnie And we'll both be pirates And maybe there's treasure we'll never find Chasing a specter the rest of our lives We'll go sailing away on a Portuguese ship You look so good with a sword on your hip Singing and dancing a bottle of rum In the young moonlight So put your hand in mine We can start a new life The crew is assembled They're leaving tonight Let's be pirates Let's be outlaws I'm so tired of these undead and day jobs Let's get married, or just not bother If our friends can't, then we should either We could head out for adventure Quit our jobs and go sailing forever I'll be Blackbeard, you be Bonnie And we'll both be pirates And if they capture us What's the worst they can possibly do? They can torture us Or put us in jail But is that really worse Than the life that we're working on now? Spending four decades trying to make Enough money to just get away That's the life that they're selling But maybe we don't have to buy it Let's be pirates, let's be outlaws I'm so tired of these undead and day jobs Let's get married, or just not bother If our friends can't, then we should neither We could head out for adventure Quit our jobs and go sailing forever I'll be Blackbeard, you be Bonnie And we'll both be pirates You be Bonnie and we'll both be pirates Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.